From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Jennifer, Ariel, Elise, Chantel, Sonia, Dan, Maya, Linda, Teresa, my dear three Emmas, Jessica, Lady Janice, Elena, Alethea, John, Nanette, Rachel, Sophie, Whitney, David, Catherine, Trudy, and Stacy. Thank you so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron, like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. This week's podcast will be a revisit on H.H. Holmes, this is always a good story to tell, not to mention, I'm working on something special for you for October that has been taking much of my focus. Herman Webster Mudgett was born on May 16, 1861 in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. So, as we usually do, let's get into some history for that time. 1861 was truly an interesting time with regards to recent past history. Early that year, the Confederate States of America was formed with Jefferson Davis as the president. Jefferson was a graduate of the prestigious West Point and was also a former U.S. Army officer. The next month, Abraham Lincoln was sworn in as the 16th president of the United States of America. Then just five short weeks later, the American Civil War would officially begin. At 4.30 a.m., General Pierre Beauregard ordered the Confederates, or the South for those unfamiliar, to fire 50 cannons at Fort Sumter in South Carolina. The fort was captured and showed heavy damage. The flag that flew was the Rebel Stars and Bars flag. Three days later, President Lincoln called for 75,000 militiamen and summoned a special session of Congress. Robert E. Lee, on that same day, was offered command of the Union Army or the North, but he at first declined. He was the son of an American Revolutionary War hero, as well as a 25-year distinguished veteran of the U.S. Army. He eventually traveled to Virginia and accepted the offer to command the military and naval forces there. Up until 1861, whale oil had been the primary fuel for lamps. But this year, Pennsylvania had an oil well that began producing more than 3,000 barrels of crude oil a day, 
thus the beginning of oil refining, producing an alternative fuel for lamps. This thankfully contributed to the decline in whale hunting. In Germany, factory workers who were making mirrors became understandably concerned after having their teeth began to fall out. After an investigation, it was determined that they all had mercury poisoning. This led to government regulations requiring changes in how mirrors were made. In China, their emperor, Xinfeng, had been living a life of excess, including drugs, and died this year at the tender age of 30. One of his sons that he had had with one of his consorts took the throne. This is also the year that Great Britain put together a commission to investigate child labor in the non-textile industries due to occupational disease being discovered. Back in the United States, the telegraph finally connected the West Coast to the East Coast, and it was a communications marvel, but also brought an end to the Pony Express. As for the cost of living, rice was seven cents a pound, sugar was just eight cents a pound, beef was 11 cents a pound, and cheese was a whopping 13 cents a pound. Rent for a four-room house was $4.45 a month. If you wanted to buy some land, well, it was anywhere from three to five dollars an acre. And for a comparison, which, you know, varies a lot depending on where you live, it now costs between $2,000 to $7,000 an acre. Home canning jars had finally been invented, and the population of the United States was around 31 million people. So this was the atmosphere that Herman was born into. His parents were Levi and Theodate Mudgett. Now, his father, Levi, was born in November 1827 in New Hampshire into a farming and very religious family that would have been considered pretty well off. And he, too, joined the community as a farmer when he was grown, but also did odd jobs like house painting and so on. Theodate Page Price was born in October 1827, also in New Hampshire. She had been a school teacher before she got married and was described as a cold and distant woman who hid behind her religion, being a devout Methodist, to justify her beliefs and behaviors. Herman himself was the middle child of five. His oldest sibling was his sister Ellen, then his older brother Arthur, and then him, and then after him were his younger brother Henry and finally his baby sister Mary. The children's births were spread out a bit. Ellen was born when Levi was 24, whereas the baby, Mary, was born when the father was 43 years old. So Herman was born into a very upper middle class family in Gilmanton, which was a very small, isolated town about 20 miles north of Concord. His family was financially comfortable, but behind closed doors, his father was an alcoholic, and his mother was a deeply religious woman who preached Bible scripture to him incessantly. Discipline back then was nearly always spanking or smacking kids, and his parents were no exception. They were reported to be quite strict. It has also been said that if he and his siblings misbehaved, their father would beat them and lock them in the attic. Both parents demanded total 
and complete obedience from their children. And a side note, before we continue, even though his name is actually Herman, I'm going to refer to him as just Holmes to save on confusion. It has been said that if the children cried during discipline, Levi was known to put a rag soaked in kerosene to, quote, quiet them. The children would also be deprived of food if they acted up. Holmes himself was described as a mama's boy, always wanting to be with his mother, but he was also quite content with reading books by himself, and unsurprisingly, one of his favorite authors was Edgar Allan Poe, as well as Jules Verne. It was also mentioned that Holmes was said to be a bit of an inventor. Holmes himself said this about his parents, quote, I was well-trained by loving and religious parents. I know, and any deviations in my afterlife from the straight and narrow way of rectitude are not attributable to the want of a tender mother's prayers or a father's control, emphasized, when necessary, by the liberal use of the rod wielded by no sparing hand, end quote. In his early school years at Gilmanton Academy, he was described by his peers as incredibly intelligent, but small for his age. He was also considered mm, odd by most of them as well. There is a story that, during the walk to school, Holmes would have to pass by the doctor's office in their village, and the doctor didn't bother to lock the door. Now, Little Holmes was scared of the doctor, and the other kids found out about it. So they drug him into that office, kicking and screaming, and forced him to stand face to face with a full medical human skeleton. Holmes would later say, quote, It was a wicked and dangerous thing to do to a child of tender years and health, but it proved a heroic method of treatment destined ultimately to cure me of my fears and to inculcate in me first a strong feeling of curiosity and later a desire to learn, which resulted years afterwards in my adopting medicine as a profession." End quote. It is important to note that he was bullied by the other kids pretty badly. But after this incident, he did become interested in the medical field and human anatomy. He absorbed the information out of as many books as he could get his hands on and would even sit and talk with his teachers about it, which impressed them, and they found that quite charming. And this would be the beginning of Holmes showing signs of what he would later become. He then began dissecting dead animals to learn their anatomy or performing surgery on them, but that hobby sort of evolved into dissecting and performing surgery on living animals. He started with small reptiles and other small creatures, but quickly moved on to mammals such as rabbits and even dogs. He became quite comfortable with dissection. While he was still a young boy, he and his only friend were said to have been playing together in an abandoned building when his friend fell from a higher floor and died. However, word around the campfire was that Holmes had pushed his friend, but of course there is no proof of that. Little known fact, Holmes also had what is known as a lazy eye, which didn't help him being bullied either. 
A lazy eye is actually called amblyopia and is generally an early childhood condition where a child's brain sort of focuses on one eye, basically ignoring the other. If that eye is not stimulated properly, the nerve cells within it are responsible for being able to see out of that eye and they will not mature normally. The eye itself is perfectly normal, but this condition causes blurred vision and poor depth perception. The sooner the treatment, the better the outcome. So back then, there was a superstition about this. Supposedly having a lazy eye meant that you were a witch and therefore it was a sign of being in league with the devil. Another version of this was that the person had a criminal mind. So the town and more specifically the other kids liked to tease and make fun of him for that. And to be fair, Holmes was beginning to develop a bit of a criminal mind. Before he graduated high school, he was already comfortably committing forgery and fraud, including apparently a snake oil cure for alcoholism, real estate scams, and he also supposedly invented a machine that could make natural gas from pure water. By 1878, Holmes was 17 years old. He went with his father to help do some work with a wealthy farmer in a nearby town. This is where he met Clara Lovering, the farmer's daughter, and he was immediately drawn to her. They didn't have a long courtship and they decided to get married. And rumor had it that he had seen Clara flirting with another young man at a church gathering and he wasn't having that. He allegedly approached the young man and threatened him with violence to get him to leave. After the marriage, he then graduated from high school. So that was Holmes's childhood. Let's unpack it. By all accounts, he came from a fairly wealthy family and went to a very good school. His mother was overly religious, much like Ed Gein's mother was, which can pose problems for children if it is taken past a certain point. But back then, most people were fairly devoutly religious, never skipped church and so on. So it is reasonable to assume that he watched the society around him behave and live in a similar fashion. So chances are he might not have thought much of that aspect. He was considered a mama's boy, but none of the sources I found blatantly called much of any attention to it, not like Ed Gein, as I mentioned. Noted, but not necessarily abnormally so, compared to a lot of children that just naturally have a preference over one parent to the other. But then again, it's no wonder that he was closer with his mother if the stories of his father's manner of discipline are to be believed then mother would have been the lesser of two evils. Having a cloth soaked in kerosene held over your mouth and nose would most likely lead to poisoning. This is what happens. The airway and lungs become irritated. Breathing becomes difficult as the throat can begin to swell. It is also quite painful and can lead to vision loss. Low blood pressure develops rapidly. The person would most likely then collapse and they could go into convulsions or feel euphoria, like being drunk. Please don't do this, FYI. The person would lose consciousness, potentially have seizures, feel very weak. 
Later symptoms include depression, chronic headaches, abdominal pain, bloody bowel movements, literal burns in the esophagus, and throwing up blood. Now, how well a person can get over the effects of kerosene poisoning depends completely on how much they were exposed to and for how long. If any liquid kerosene gets into the lungs, then it becomes quite troublesome as serious and permanent lung damage can happen. This is not a joke. And then we have the ever-present bullying by the other kids, and we've gone over plenty of information on how bullying affects children. It's bad, friends. It's really, really bad. Add in that he was terrified of the doctor's office, and the other kids dragged him against his will into the office and pushed him up super close to a real human skeleton. At first he was terrified, as one would expect, but then he became fascinated. Could this have been that moment, the switch turned on, if you will, because after he began cutting up animals, at first dead and then using live animals. So since the 1970s, there has been research that consistently shows a correlation between cruelty to animals and later delinquency, violence and criminal behavior. According to Psychology Today, nearly all violent crime perpetrators have a history of animal cruelty in their profiles. It goes without saying that most kids that abuse animals have witnessed or experienced abuse themselves. 30% of children who have witnessed domestic violence act out in a similar fashion against their own pets. Some developmentally related motives that most likely apply to homes are curiosity or exploration, mood enhancement, and rehearsal for interpersonal violence. Like motivation, there are also types of animal abusers. The experimenter is usually ages one through six who are cognitively delayed and do not understand that animals can't be treated as toys. But Holmes was older than this. He fits into the more cry for help abuser, which is usually ages six to 12. Children this age intellectually know that it is not okay to abuse animals. This age group who abuse animals are generally showing symptoms of a deeper psychological problem. So let's get back into his story. After marrying Clara, they had a son named Robert Mudgett. And side note, Robert went on to be a certified public accountant and served as city manager for Orlando, Florida, Holmes's bloodline is still very much alive today. In 1880, when Holmes was 19 years old, he decided to enroll at the University of Michigan Medical School and was accepted. The money that he had gotten from Mary and Clara, who was rich, paid for his college. He packed up his family and moved to Michigan. Now, Holmes was again a very successful student and impressed his professors. He even began working as a sort of apprentice for one professor, the chief of anatomy of the school. With this rather coveted relationship, he had free access to corpses that were used for study at the school. And with this, Holmes began quietly taking the bodies with him to play with as he pleased, or he resorted to stealing bodies from morgues. He dissected and mutilated them until there was literally nothing left that he could do. 
He would then make up a fake name, buy a life insurance policy under that name, then report that the person had died. Since he had the body, the insurance companies would pay, and he did this several times. This was also the time that he began using the name H.H. H. Holmes or Henry Howard Holmes. It was also during this time that Clara packed herself and their son and moved back to New Hampshire, never to see her husband again. But they also never officially got divorced. It was reported that he was physically abusive to Clara. Bruises were seen. Now, Holmes graduated from medical school in 1884 and was an official MD. With the insurance scams he ran, he had money and now time, which he used to travel for a bit. He visited a few states, would take on a job for a month or so, then completely disappear. But he finally settled in Chicago in 1886 at the age of 25. He walked into a pharmacy owned by Elizabeth Holton and immediately loved it. As that neighborhood of Chicago was rapidly growing, Elizabeth had more customers and business than she could handle by herself. Holmes charmed Elizabeth into immediately giving him a job there. Back in this time, a pharmacist or druggist was also a chemist, and most drugstores were full of elixirs and potions. And when Holmes would put together a prescription, he would make the act a bit entertaining, though he really wasn't much of a chemist. But he was charming and polite and apparently quite humorous, and the customers loved him, especially the women. Needless to say, it didn't take long for him to become the manager of the entire store. He was accepted into the local society. Life was good. But Holmes was not satisfied with his life. Now, sources say Elizabeth and her husband, a doctor who had also graduated from the same college as Holmes, disappeared. But that is false. The couple lived in that local area their entire lives and survived well past the turn of the century. Holmes had simply bought the pharmacy from Elizabeth. So Holmes also had met a woman named Murda Belknap and married her, though he was still married to Clara. The couple had a daughter they named Lucy Theodate Holmes, born in July 1889. Holmes was 28 years old. And side note, Lucy went on to become a public school teacher. Two years later, Holmes bought a large lot across the street from the pharmacy and construction immediately began. The plans were for a two-story with retail space on the bottom floor and apartments on the second. But interestingly, Holmes refused to pay the companies that provided the materials such as the steel used and they sued him. He did this whenever workers would start to become suspicious about why the halls and rooms were being set up the way that they were, but he was still able to convince investors to fund an additional third story so that they would have more rooms to rent for the upcoming World's Fair that was coming to Chicago. But that level was never completed fully. Holmes had stashed furniture and other material from the companies coming to repossess them due to non-payment. But where he had hit these items? In the hidden rooms and odd passageways built throughout the building. 
Some of the rooms were soundproof, and the hallways were nearly all like a maze, with corridors that led nowhere. And also, many of the rooms had chutes that dropped straight down to the basement, which you could assume would be for laundry, but no. Holmes had containers of acid, bags of quicklime, as well as a crematorium. So he advertised that there were rooms for rent in his huge building when there really wasn't, at least on the third floor. People would come to stay at his murder castle, quote-unquote, in the advertised hotel that was specifically designed so that he could capture them, torture them, murder them, and mutilate their bodies. Some rooms were airtight, and he gassed his victims. One room was a huge vault, and he would get people to go inside, then lock them in the vault and let them run out of air and slowly die. Holmes had also rooms built that were nowhere near big enough to be rooms. They were more like little cubby holes that he could stash live victims or already dead bodies within. They were in the floors, the walls, all over. And get this, folks. He had a room that had iron plates in it with some kind of blow torches behind it so he could trap a person inside this room then turn the torches on and quite literally cook these people alive. He had a room where he could tie his victim's arms and legs out, then literally pull them apart, drawn and quartered. He had all manner of choices and how he wanted to torture and kill his victims and then sell bits of their remains for monetary gain. If you are interested in seeing the blueprints as well as drawings and maps of the inside of this Myrtle Castle, I recommend Googling it. You won't be disappointed. It's crazy. Now, Holmes and his second wife and daughter had a place just outside of the larger part of the city, but he had made most of the third floor his office and apartment where he spent most of his nights. He began an affair with a married woman named Julia Smith, she, her husband, and their daughter happened to live in one of the decent hotel rooms on the second floor, and her husband actually worked at a jewelry counter on the ground floor. Once her husband found out about the affair, he packed up and left his family. Holmes then took out a very large life insurance policy on both Julia and her daughter, then, around Christmas in 1891, she and her daughter disappeared. When asked, he stated that Julia had died during an abortion attempt and he sent her daughter to live with her father. And there were other women he had affairs with that went missing as well. Then, in 1893, the World's Fair came to Chicago. It was to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's landing in the New World in 1492. It was a huge exposition that had a big impact on society and the culture. And it was a massive undertaking to put together between the architecture of the buildings and pools being built to sanitation needs, the arts, and American industrial optimism as a whole. It covered 690 acres, and the buildings were built in the neoclassical architecture with canals and lagoons. It boasted visitors from 46 countries. 
And you know Holmes took advantage of the huge influx of visitors needing a room. Most, if not all, who never left the hotel once they entered. Now, while construction was going on in the murder castle, Holmes met a carpenter by the name of Benjamin Peitzel, who had a very shady past, and the two became very close friends. The two worked on several different scams together, and Peitzel was Holmes's little lapdog. But it is thought that Benjamin wasn't aware of the murders. During this time, a not well-known actress named Minnie Williams moved to Chicago. He met her and quickly found out that she owned a very large amount of land in Fort Worth, Texas. So he hired her to work for him at the hotel. He found out that she had a sister whose name was also on the deed of that land. So he formulated a plan. He talked Minnie into signing the deed over to one of his false names. Then he and Minnie, telling people they were married, got an apartment in another part of Chicago and had Nanny, Minnie's sister, come visit them. After visiting, Nanny wrote back to her family, saying that she was going to go to Europe with Harry. Neither sister was ever seen again. So the insurance companies were beginning to get suspicious at the number of claims Holmes was putting in for dead people leaving him their life insurance. Once he realized this, he took off and went down to the land in Texas with another new wife. Keep in mind, he's still married to the first two. There he began planning to build another murder castle and used the same scams as he had in Chicago to in effect, get free labor and materials. And this was when he was arrested for the first time for stealing horses. While in jail, he thought up another scam to fake his own death with another prisoner. Once Holmes was bailed out and he began to set it up, the insurance companies, quite familiar with his name at this point, refused to work with him. So he called upon his best friend, Benjamin Peitzel. He talked Benjamin into opening a life insurance policy under a false name and then fake his own death. Benjamin's wife would get $10,000, which she would then split with Holmes and a shady lawyer they were working with. But Holmes had other plans. He rendered Benjamin unconscious with chloroform and then set him on fire. Then, to top it all off, Holmes talked Benjamin's wife into allowing him to take three of her five children with him on a trip through the United States and into Canada. He had lied to Mrs. Peitzel, saying Benjamin was hiding in London for the time being, and he had no intention of giving her any of the money. So this is where it gets kind of confusing, so stay with me, okay? Holmes took the three children and sort of stashed them in a house in whatever city the train stopped in. Then he would travel back, get Miss Peitzel and the two remaining children, travel with them and stash them in yet another house that was not in the same city as the three children. And he did this back and forth, telling Miss Peitzel that it was necessary to throw the insurance companies off of their trail. Now, Holmes didn't really have the patience to keep this up, so he murdered the three children. One of them he poisoned by overdosing the small boy with pills. 
then dismembered the boy and burned the remains. His teeth and part of his skull would be found in a house Holmes had rented later. Then days later, he forced the two remaining girls into a small box, drilled a hole in it where he inserted a tube and gassed them to death. He then buried their bodies beneath the floor of a house he rented in Canada. So it was around this time that a Philadelphia investigator, Frank Geyer, was assigned to look into Holmes and the missing children. He looked into properties that Holmes owned and had recently rented, where Frank found the decomposing bodies of the two girls. They found what little remains were left of the boy in the other house. The Pinkertons were hired to help track Holmes down, and he was found and arrested on November 17th, 1894. He was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel and the three children. He then confessed to murdering a further 27 people in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, as well as six attempted murders. But it is thought that his number is much higher. When asked why he killed people, he said that he was actually innocent. Then he said he was possessed by Satan. He stated, quote, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer no more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one standing as my sponsor beside the bed where I was ushered into the world and he has been with me since, end quote. Ultimately, he was hung on May 7, 1896, in the Philadelphia County Prison. The fall didn't break his neck, so he died from being strangled. He showed no fear and actually was said to be completely calm up until he was executed. Holmes requested he be buried 10 feet deep and that his casket be encased in concrete so that no one could rob his grave because he was afraid that someone would dissect his body. Ridiculous, I know. In my opinion, this case shows a connection between childhood abuse and violent crimes. Physical and emotional abuse are well known to cause issues with brain development, but that doesn't really explain all of the fraud that he committed. He was born into an affluent family and legitimately got a degree to practice medicine. He was highly intelligent and would have been successful enough to make plenty of his own money. And the work he put into these scams would have been much higher than working for his own wage. So why the deviance? I believe it goes full circle back to the callousness that he was shown as a child. But I also believe he had been born with his wiring a little different. Nature and nurture. But tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below, or you can DM me on Instagram, at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is in the notes. But most importantly, thank you guys so much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.